Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. With so many controversies and contradictory research about the effectiveness of psychopharmacological interventions, it's often hard for us MFTs to know how to work with our clients around the issues of meds. These are questions we often ask yourself. How can you best evaluate new promising medications on the market? Are antidepressants really better than placebos? Why are so many clients prescribed antipsychotic? And what is on the horizon for the next generation of meds? Maybe you have questions like this, and today we hope to have some answers with somebody I've been looking forward to talking to for a long time, and that's Dr. Frank Anderson. Frank began his journey by earning his bachelor's degree in chemistry from the University of Illinois in 1985, followed by his MD from Rush University Medical School in 1989. He completed his residency in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. After that, he began work as a staff psychiatrist at the Trauma Center at the Justice Resort Institute under the direction of one of his major mentors, Bessel van der Kolk. In 1994, Frank launched his private practice centered on the treatment of trauma, including single incident trauma and complex trauma. His life was changed in 2004 after he met another mentor and friend, and friend of our show, Dr. Dick Schwartz, the founder of Internal Family Systems. This took Frank on a journey that gave him a new way to look at trauma, which we'll talk about today during the interview. And he really partnered with Dick and was named the chairman for the Foundation for Self-Leadership, the FSL, a nonprofit organization dedicated to advancing IFS research, scholarship, and outreach. Today, he continues to serve as the FSL Executive Director and work in his private practice in Concord, Massachusetts. He's written a great new book that we will talk about called Transcending Trauma. But I really wanted to have Frank on the show because he is a rare psychiatrist that does talk therapy. And what you can expect today in the podcast is some not only really useful information about how to talk to clients about their meds, but how to collaborate with prescribers, with other psychiatrists. Frank, as I say, has dual citizenship as both a systemic therapist and a psychiatrist. I really enjoyed talking to him, and we will be back after. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. Now, I'm very excited to be joined by Frank Anderson. Frank is a MD. He's a psychiatrist, but he also has, as we'll learn today, a very healthy respect for talk therapy. One of the most requested topics is, 
can we have someone on to talk about what is going on in the field of psychopharmacology? As systemic therapists, we have so much to keep track of. Perhaps we learned this in graduate school, but a large chance that we didn't. So what is the essentials that an MFT needs to know in order to collaborate with the psychiatrist and understand what is going on in the field of psychopharmacology. So no better person to do that with than Frank. The first question is always, if you listen to the show, we'd like to know about the background of our guests. So how did you get into psychiatry, but then having an interest in talk therapy as well? Yeah, so it's an interesting. I'm a little bit of an enigma. There's a there's a handful of us, I would say. <laughs> Probably Bessel van der Kolk is one. Dan Siegel's another one. I, I, uh, Gabor Mate is another one. There's this group of us that are psychiatrists who I would say are not really our people. (laughs) Psychiatrists are not our tribe. And I can say personally, I've been very much a therapist most of my life. It's what I've loved. It's what I enjoyed. Even though I have psychiatric training, I wasn't a person that was all about receptors and medications 24-7. Being with people and talking to people was super important for me. So there is a group of us that are our psychiatrists that very much are involved in the field of mental health, primarily through trauma treatment, not only, of course, but really want to integrate it. I really and truly am a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist. I mean that sincerely. Probably most of my practice is psychotherapy, and there's a portion that's psychopharm at this point. But in the way that I got involved in this field, you know, like many people, I have a family, a dear close family member who had psychiatric issues when they were a teenager. It profoundly affected my life really caused me to go into psychiatry instead of pediatrics. I think I would have been a pediatrician had it not been for this family member. So I was really compelled to kind of save her. And that's what brought me into psychiatry. Really fortunate enough that my psychiatry program was housed with Bessel van der Kolk um, in Boston at Harvard. And Bessel van der Kolk's trauma center was at my residency training program. So I was able to connect with Bessel early on in my career and talking to people in my residency program, doing psychotherapy with them. Most everybody had a trauma history, so it was an interesting mix. And I have to say the clientele that I worked with in my residency program were homeless, chronically mentally ill, and had no insurance. So these were really, these were folks that really struggled a lot. And so sitting down and talking to them was enormously important, enormously rewarding, and they all had trauma histories. You know, you don't get to that point for nothing, so to speak, in a way. So I was really intrigued with the treatment of trauma, became the psychiatrist for Bessel pretty early on, and was lucky enough, because I'm in the Boston area, a lot of my supervisors were analysts. So they were teaching psychiatrists how to do therapy through analytic work, but we were also doing medicine and working with psychiatry on chronically mentally ill. So early on in my career, I was like, you have to be a person and you have to talk to somebody if you're going to give them medicines. Let me say that. Especially if they have trauma histories and you're going to put foreign substances into their body. So honestly, really quickly, I learned I'm not going to be a person to just give prescriptions. I'm going to talk to these people. (laughs) They have to develop trust in me and we have to work collaboratively together. So I learned how to undo traditional psychiatry very early on in my career. 
You may be an outlier in your profession, but for us, that makes complete sense. There is no magic pill. Who dispenses the medication is certainly important in talking to the client or the system about how the medication functions in their life, whether you have a trauma history or not, is certainly important. So let's talk. We'll talk about the therapy piece later. Let's start with a lot of questions that I've been getting that I want to make sure I ask you about about psychopharmacology. So with so many controversies and contradictory research about the effectiveness of psychopharmacological interventions, it's you know it's often hard for systemic therapists to know how to work with your clients around the issue of meds. So how can we as systemic therapists keep up to date with psychopharmacology and learn the best way to evaluate new promising medications on the market, Frank? Because it is really a vast and sometimes overwhelming field for therapists. Well, it's a great question and it's a complicated question. Like one one piece I I'm hearing in what you're saying is how do we even like how do we know when it's time to refer? So that's a whole piece we can talk about if you want to, which is different than how in the world do I keep updated with what's going on? I do think there are a lot of pretty good continuing education programs for therapists. There are some books that are available for therapists, but Honestly, I think it's daunting and overwhelming for therapists to keep updated on psychopharmacology, honestly. I think that's it's hard enough for psychiatrists to keep updated on all that stuff. Sure, you can take a continuing ed course. I teach a lot of these courses in some way. But the way I teach it is this. Instead of memorizing all the new drugs that are coming out, because psychopharmacology is an exploding field. There's tons of stuff happening right now, especially with the whole psychedelics world. So there's tons going on. The way I like to teach is very basic, like the basic premise of there are certain neurotransmitters or chemicals that help our brain communicate. And these chemicals are either excitatory or inhibitory. So they're activating or calming. And there's not that many of them, honestly. There's dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin, glutamate, GABA. There's like five or six of these chemicals. And for what I teach people is if you could just learn about these neurotransmitters and what they do, then any drug that comes along Say, oh, it raises dopamine, that's excitatory. It increases serotonin, that's calming. Like, instead of memorizing the drugs, it it does make sense from my perspective to learn some basic principles about neurotransmitters, and then you can apply it to any new drug that comes out. Does that make sense? Oh, it's a beautiful teaching point and kind of distilling it down, excitatory versus calming. I love that in these basic neurotransmitters that pertain to functioning. Now, your other initial response is very important to our listeners about how and when to make a referral. That's complicated. Like, And one of the things that I've learned, and I, t- I have a whole, I, I didn't realize this. I was just kind of doing this intuitively myself as somebody who was a psychiatrist who was also doing therapy. And then at some point, somebody says, hey, you have a method here. Let's write a chapter. <laughs> so I was like, okay. So I wrote a chapter in this book about this method. And what I would say is this, and I'm just going to a very brief way. First of all, Therapy goes along pretty typically. You know, you you have a client, you get in a rhythm, they get in a rhythm. All of a sudden, things start going awry. What's up here? Why Why is there 
a halt in the therapy? Why do things start slowing down? Why does your client get stuck? Or why are they all of a sudden more symptomatic? Like what happened there? That's when I always tell people think biology because biology can derail psychotherapy. So I always say if things feel stuck, if people have a lot of symptoms, think meds, think meds. It's a possibility. You know what the normal rhythm of therapy is. And sometimes people get medical illnesses and that derails them. Sometimes their receptors get out of whack. So that's one thing that I like to teach people about is like, you know, when therapy's stuck or when people are too in their experience. The term that I use is blended. When people are overwhelmed all the time, they're, you can't get a lot of psychotherapy done because they're going from one crisis to the next. When people are too in their experience, think medications. Medications are good unblending or separating agents. They help people separate from their symptoms. One of the things that's very confusing for me when I consult with therapists, and I do, interestingly, a lot more consulting with therapists around meds than I do with psychiatrists, is that medications treat symptoms, not feelings. Psychiatrists and prescribers talk symptom language. So if your clients are pretty symptomatic, come up with a list of three or four symptoms that they're having. Not, I feel sad, I feel lonely, could I have a pill? No, thank you. <laughs> it's, I'm having trouble sleeping, I'm having trouble concentrating, I feel hopeless or suicidal. Come up with a list of symptoms, not 30, four. Because if you go in, if your client goes with, the, with goes into an appointment, a 30 minute maybe if you're lucky, a minute appointment, all over the place, they're gonna come out with six or seven prescriptions. Very overwhelming. So I like to talk to therapists and say, hey, your clients get symptomatic, they're too overwhelmed such that you can't do psychotherapy. Think medication, think medication. You don't have to know which ones. You have to help prepare your client to be ready for that psychopharma valve. Okay, sort out the feelings, keep them aside, come up with a list of symptoms because that's what prescribers describe, and then they're more poised for a better outcome in that very quick psychopharm visit. Okay, let me give you a couple of presentations of how clients, or in our case for our listeners, couple and family client systems may present. So I want to do this on my own. I don't need medication. I'm a little depressed, but it's because of what's going on in my life or my partner. So a presentation of a resistant client that somehow sees psychopharmacology as making them weak or less than, and they have a partner or a family member, maybe a parent pushing that on them. So they are resistant to even have a consultation with a psychiatrist. How do we handle a situation like that? And this happens a lot, especially working with teenagers. Parents think the teenagers are depressed and want the medicines. Kids don't want to take medicine. So it happens a lot in that scenario, but it also happens in couples. So it's a very common scenario. I do not push medicines on anyone. I think it's a big waste of time. If a kid doesn't want to take it, they're not going to take it. If an adult partner doesn't want to take it, they're not going to take medications. What I do do is I embrace the resistance. So there's a really good reason why you don't want to take this medicine. Tell me more about that. I really know that it's important for some part of you 
to not want to take this medicine. I don't want to get in a battle. I embrace the part that's resistant. And what that does is open the door. It's like, oh, finally somebody's listening to me instead of trying to shove a medicine down my throat. It opens the door to learn why they're resistant because there's all kinds of reasons why people are resistant. Parents used to give me uh, medicines all the time when I was a little kid. And in fact, they were just medicating my feelings because they didn't really want to hear what I had to say. Oh, wow, that's really important. That makes sense to me. So whatever it is, I'm always trying to learn from the part that's resistant why they're resistant. And I try to validate that experience. What that typically does is open the door for the other side of the client who does want to take medicines. <laughs> then they're much more likely to say, and, and I do know I'm more depressed. I do know I'm more reactive. And so it lets them sit with a dilemma within themselves instead of it being polarized from the outside. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's a great way of describing. It's going to foreshadow your interest in internal family systems that we'll talk about later on when you talk about the conflicting parts of exactly. the client. It totally uh, applies with meds too. It Same does. exact thing. Yeah, it's That's a great, great parallel. All the time. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you about this. I often use a, an analog of you had a client that was a diabetic and for no reason of their own, they're a child of diabetic, their body doesn't p produce insulin. No one would think less of them for uh, taking insulin. And the same thing, if you have a, in the case of depression, if you have a biological basis for depression, it is not your fault that your body is not producing enough dopamine or uh, serotonin and you, no matter how much you want to get better on your own. It is a biological constraint. So how do you help people to understand, as you were saying earlier, the biological limitations of you know mental health and the fact that even if someone is strong-willed and is motivated and follows the plan, while there is no magic pill, it is certainly for a lot of people the difference that makes a difference to do the work. Well, so what I'll say about that is this, and you know, that argument doesn't go over very well for people who are hesitant or resistant. It is a, let me convince you why this is a good idea. Right. Makes them want to dig their heels in more. It does. It does. So what I typically do, and you know, people try to explain that, look, if you have high blood pressure, you take this. The reality is in our culture and society right now, there is a lot of stigma around mental illness, mental health issues, it is certainly becoming much better. I would first say, tell me why you don't want to. What is your hesitation about it? So again, joining the other side first. Then when that, you know, I don't want to be seen as weak. I, I feel inadequate anyways. I'm doing poorly at my work. I feel like this is a failure if I have to take medicine. Oh, wow, that makes sense to me. I totally get that. I understand that. So validating the hesitancy goes much further than convincing of the biology. Now, once I do validate that, it's not the end of the story. They don't rush and say, give me five pills. Thank you so much. Okay, then, so once I validate whatever reason they don't want to, right, instead of convincing them, I make this feeling symptom distinction that I said before. Like, medicines should not be changing you in any way. Medicines should not make you who you are not. 
If that ever happens, please let me know, because that's not the goal. A lot of people have fears that medicines are going to make them somebody who they're not. And that's where I get into the biology and I start educating people. I said, just so you have this information, it's totally your decision, but I want you to have an informed decision. You know, when your receptors are out of whack in number or when your chemicals in your brain are either too high or too low, they tend to produce symptoms for people. And here's some examples of symptoms. And they're like, oh, I have that. Reactivity? Yeah, I know what that is. Anger? Oh, I'm feeling that. So all, all a med should do, and the only thing I want it to do, is to readjust your chemicals so they're within the normal range. And you should be able to feel a difference, and those symptoms should be able to go away. And if that doesn't happen, don't take a medicine. It's only here to alleviate symptoms. Your feelings should be the same, you should be the same person, and you should not feel changed or altered in any way. Now that's the only way I work with people, I'll say to them, right? And if you wanna work in that way, I'm open, but I don't want you to take anything you don't wanna take. I don't want you to take anything that you're not in charge of or in control of. I say, I educate, you decide. So then the person doesn't feel pushed. They feel like, oh, I'm in control? This guy sounds pretty smart. Maybe he can educate me and I'll decide what I want to do. Because most people go into meds feeling pushed to do something they don't really want to do. So when you give them control and information, the whole process goes very differently. And you're right. It should be returning you back to you. So if you don't feel like yes. yourself, you're either over-medicated or under-medicated. Now, yes. part of the psychoeducation that goes around with that and what therapists hear a lot from their psychiatrist, oh, well, it didn't work right away. And even though there are very skilled psychiatrists out there, it is a trial and error. It is titrating up and down. Talk about the learning curve because what might work on the biochemistry of one client may not work with the next. So talk about how you frame that to potential consumers who may indeed over time fight the right, find the right medication, but it may take time. It might take various doses and various types of medication to get the desired effect. So two things about that, okay? Two very important things I would say. One is education, education, education. Like I'm very clear. Like I almost feel instead of a psychopharmacologist, I'm an educator. <laughs> like give these people the information so they can understand it. I'll say this medication, it should work right away. And if it doesn't work right away, there's a problem. Either the dose is too low and you raise it. Now this one here, this one will take four to six weeks to work. We've got to increase it very slowly. It's not going to work right away and we wouldn't expect it to. So the education is important around which ones should work quickly, which ones shouldn't, so they know what's going on. And most prescribers just give a pill with our prescription without doing that extra education. And oh, by the way, here are the side effects that you might have. Here are the ones to look out for. If you get any of these, let me know. So you got to educate people about the potential risks, about how long it would take, that's super important. Then again, the client's like, oh, good, this makes sense to me. I understand that. I'm not going to expect taking a pill and feeling better tomorrow. So the education is key. 
in uh, helping people understand what to expect from this medicine and what not to expect. That's one piece. The second piece is, and I hear this a lot, I don't want to be a guinea pig. I don't want to try this, try that, try this. What I will say is that we have genetic testing now in a way that we didn't before. So that is one of the advances in the field, which I'm really excited about. We used to do genetic testing several years ago, and honestly, it wasn't very well perfected. They used to do you know, saliva tests and urine tests, and it wasn't so good. Now, there's really been an evolution. I'm not gonna say it's 100%, but there are several companies out there that do genetic testing and they can tell you which meds are more likely to work for you based on a lot of the samples. You know, they do. They still do saliva and they do something else. Maybe they do blood. And so people really like that because it's concrete added information. It's like, oh, so there's a 75% chance that Prozac will work and a 40% chance that Paxil will work based on my based on what this test showed me. So. More and more psychiatrists are routinely including genetic testing because it does take the guesswork out of it. Now, the other thing is measuring neurotransmitter levels. Like, look, your serotonin's low. We're just starting to do that also. There's ways to measure these receptors. So I think people love information. It helps them decide better. So the, the field of psychopharmacology is certainly evolving. It's not where we want it to be. It's not like if you have a pneumonia, you get a blood test, you get a blood culture, and they say erythromycin or penicillin, 500 milligrams will kill this bacteria. <laughs> We're not quite there yet. However, there's much more information that's out there and available so that people can make these decisions with more information. So I'm excited about that piece of the field where it's evolving the people. It's not as much guesswork. And that was a hard sell before, honestly, because it was a lot of guesswork. It had to do with the skill level of the therapist and their diagnostic abilities as to what your neurotransmitter levels were. Now there's more information available to help, which I think is great. I do think that is great and changing the game and knowledge is power and educating the consumer is so important. So let me give you another scenario. This is yep. kind of a reverse. A client comes in because they want a magic pill and they have gone to the yes. psychiatrist and they're like, no, no, I don't want to see a talk therapist. It's the reverse scenario. Yes. Since you do both, talk yeah. about how to work with somebody that doesn't want to do the talk therapy. They just want the magic pill. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm going to say a couple things about that because that certainly happens. It's interesting. It happens with therapists sometimes. When therapists get overwhelmed with clients and they don't know what to do, they're like, go to a psychiatrist and take a damn pill. So sometimes I hear that from therapists that are overwhelmed too. But more often you can hear it from a client. I don't want to talk about this stuff. I don't want to be vulnerable. Just give me a pill and that'll fix everything. So there's certainly parts of clients that are like that also. Here's what I do with that. What I do is I have a discussion about differentiating what is biologically based and what is emotionally based. And this is something that is tricky for therapists to get a handle on, but it's enormously valuable. It's enormously valuable when therapists are trying to sort out, does this require medicine or is this 
related to something emotional. So we can take anything, like let's take depression, for example. I would have my client, I'll talk about this with my client, like, I want you to get a, go inside, and we do this in IFS, as we'll talk about, I guess, in a minute, but go inside and see if you can get any sense as to whether this depression is biological in any way, or this depression is related to something that's going on in your life. Like, for example, are you depressed because your relationship with your spouse is really not going well and your job is really tenuous? Is that what's causing this depression? Check inside, see what your gut tells you, I would say something like that. And sometimes the client will say, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, I guess a portion of my depression is related to my life circumstance. Great. Let's work on that piece in therapy. Check again, I'll say to the client, is there also a portion of this that's biologically based, that's not in your control, that feels like it's happening to you, that's affecting your whole system? Because one part of you could be depressed, but when depression's biologically based, it affects all everything inside. And clients, surprisingly, when you ask them, can differentiate. Now, often I'll have clients say, you know, that's really interesting. I think about 30% of it's biology. I don't have any control over it. And I think 70% is about what's going on in my life. And that's where I say, great. Why don't you and I work on the 70% that's related to your life? And why don't we see about sending you to a prescriber and see if we can help that 30% that might be biological and might be genetic in some way. So it gives clients this self-awareness, self-connection, and, oh, it's not all one thing or all, it's all not my fault, right? It's all not about my life, because honestly, most times it's a percentage of both, that there's a biological component and there's an emotional component. And that's easier for clients to tolerate. They don't blame themselves. They don't feel totally helpless. So I say, let's sort out this difference together. And then they're included in the process. And I find that very helpful and very effective. So intuitive how you just explained it. So because you have brought up internal family systems, IFS, and if you're listening to this show, you you know that that's Dick Schwartz's model who has certainly been a friend and a colleague of mine, influenced my career. I think on the interview with Dick, I told you when I entered the field in my early 20s, I don't think I was ready for IFS. It's a, it's a kind of approach that grows with you, but it's so intuitive that we have a part of us that does this and a part of us that does that. So you mentioned Bessel being one of your mentors, and obviously IFS and trauma work is intricately related to Bessel's work. So I am curious, yes, how you discovered IFS. And I mean, you were saying it earlier, I imagine you use IFS to create separation, this blend uh, when somebody is biologically constrained and going through something that helps you work with their parts. But I'll let you lay that out for our listeners that might not know a lot about IFS. How does it complement your practice of psychiatry? I did, as I said, I met Bessel 
1992, really years ago, and I was faculty in the psychiatrist for him at the trauma center. And, you know, I used to do workshops for Bessel every year. He has an annual trauma conference, and I would do psychopharm workshops for Bessel. And one year in 2004, I think he invited Dick Schwartz to speak. And so I went to Dick's workshop, and it was kind of a game changer for me because I had been doing therapy with trauma clients, and I've been giving medicines for trauma clients, clients with trauma histories for many years, from 92 until 2004. And then I met Dick Schwartz, and he had this very kind of bizarre and unique approach to treating trauma, which really made intuitive sense to me. Like, we all have different parts of ourselves. These parts are normal. They're not pathological. They all have good intentions, right? Which is a huge piece. Even the depressed part has good intentions. You gotta love all your parts. There are no bad parts. Yes, there are no bad parts, exactly right. So we, you know, and it worked beautifully with medications because people, you know, would often say, oh my God, a part of me really wants, is sick of this depression and a part of me doesn't want to take a pill because I don't want to be seen as weak. So it was a beautiful blending of that, right? Is let's look at all of these parts. Let's listen to all of the conflicting feelings and views that you have about medication. But when I met Dick Schwartz in 2004, I was like, oh my God, you know, this is a game changer for me, not only for my psychopharm practice, but there's a way that doing IFS is a healing modality for trauma, just like I would say EMDR is or sensory motor psychotherapy. For me, IFS is the most complete model. So it's got this healing component to it, which is very enticing for people. They feel it and experience it when they start going inside. It's really self-awareness and self-connection, honestly. Most people are so externally driven and externally focused. This allows us to start listening and going inside, getting more mindful. And, you know, because of this combination of a psychiatrist and therapist, it was a natural blending of those two worlds. Let's talk to the parts about medicine. You know, one of the things that's super interesting, and it, it, now I'm used to this, but it fascinates people to hear this. Parts can block medication effects all the time. I hear it over and over again. You know, sometimes psychiatrists scratch their head. Why is this medicine not working? Why is this not working? But nobody's asking the parts, are you okay with taking a medicine? Are you willing to do this? And I'll give you a perfect example of this. This happens all the time with trauma survivors who have trouble sleeping. Many trauma survivors have trouble sleeping because bad things happen at night. It's very common, right? So someone comes in, I have trouble sleeping, trouble sleeping, and the psychiatrist starts, don't, you know, give them trazodone, give them this, give them Ambien, give them this. Nobody asks the hypervigilant part, is it okay with taking a sleep medicine? Okay, the hypervigilant part is the one that says, I have to keep us safe at night. I'm going to keep a watch out so nothing dangerous happens. So what ends up happening when you're not asking is everybody okay inside with you taking a medicine? Is the hypervigilant part blocks the trazodone. And it's amazing. People are shocked by it, but I see it over and over and over again. Parts can block medication effect. The thing that I tell people, and then they kind of get this when I say this, everybody knows about the placebo effect, right? 33% of all non-medicines work. (laughs) 
every study that they do, and this is reproducible over and over again. We'll give half the people the drug and half the people a sugar pill. And guess what? 30% of the people who take a sugar pill get benefit from the drug. Very psychologically mediated, right? The same is true with blocking meds too. Parts can block medicines, just like other parts can make them work. It's a fascinating thing. Nobody's done any studies on this, but I see it all the time. Like, let's ask the vigilant part, are you okay with taking a sleep medicine? And guess what? If it's like, yeah, I'm really tired, I'm will I need a break, the med starts working. Just like you were saying earlier in the interview, just like you have to explore that resistance and disarm that client, not strong arm them. You Just like you work externally, you work internally with the client's parts to make peace with that hypervigilant part, let it take step back, and only then will you get the true benefit of the psychopharmacological agent. That is an amazing parallel. Isn't it? It's like, yeah. one, I'll tell you, the one client, for example, and this, and this I will say, Therapists are the one to do this work, not prescribers. Therapists are with clients more time. Therapists can explore all these different dimensions. You know, psychiatrists sometimes have 15 minutes with a client. You can't get a lot done in 15 minutes as a prescriber. One of my clients, for example, the vigilant part that didn't want to take the sleep medicine, for example, with exploration and just curiosity, it's like the bed is dangerous. The bed is dangerous. So it's like, well, what if you slept on the couch? Would you be okay with taking a sleep medicine? It's like, yeah, if we sleep on the couch, I feel much better. So sure enough, the client sleeps on the couch over the weekend instead of in the bedroom. They take the medicine and it works beautifully. So you've got to work with these parts and be flexible and listen to them. And it's just different. You know, if you're weirded out about the parts thing, it's just different views inside, conflicting feelings, conflicting thoughts. Just listen to all of them and try to come up with a cooperative, collaborative solution. That's really what we're talking about here. And therapists can do that. Okay. You have dual citizenship, Frank, in the sense that you're a psychiatrist (laughs) and you are, obviously, you can tell by listening to you, very passionate about the talk therapy that you do. But as you said, you are an outlier. Most psychiatrists are not like that. So here in our remaining time, I am curious as far as the best ways for our audience, couple and family therapists, to work collaboratively with psychiatrists. How can we learn from you and encourage your profession to learn from us? Because the best treatments in these type of cases we've been talking about today are collaborative. And the client has enough problems. Coordinating between the therapist and psychiatrist should not be another one of them. So how do we do that? It's a super hard, complicated issue. So I'm really glad you bring this up. And I wish it wasn't as complicated as it is. I will tell you, it's the same thing in medicine as it is in mental health. Go to an internist if you're a senior citizen and you've got 10 different problems and you have 10 different doctors. You go to the cardiologist, you go to the rheumatologist, you go to the internist, and you go to the urologist. So coordinating medical care, unfortunately, is kind of a nightmare. I feel like therapists experience the same thing when they're trying to coordinate with psychiatrists or prescribers. I want to say that prescribers and psychiatrists have a bad rep. You know, when really with insurance, they're allowed to see people for 10 or 15 minutes. And if they don't make a change, they don't get paid. So it's kind of a setup. So I want therapists to know these psychiatrists don't have an easy job of it. 
They are totally overwhelmed. They're sometimes seeing four or five, maybe even six clients in an hour. It's very overwhelming for them. So if you can, as a therapist, make their job easier, they would be so grateful. And the way to make their job easier is to do this work up front with your clients and collaborate with them. If I'm a prescriber and I get a call from a therapist and they talk for 15 minutes about everything that's going on in the therapy, I'm hanging up that phone. (laughs) It's like too much information. I've got six people to see. No. Okay. If I get a call from a prescriber who says, hey, I'm meeting with this client. I think they're struggling with these symptoms. This is the work that we're working on. But if you can help with these symptoms in any way that you think makes sense, I would greatly appreciate that. Anything you want to hear from me, please let me know. Like, beautiful, thank you. You've got to be efficient in your communication. You've got to say what they want to hear, which is symptom, symptom, symptom. Don't make it too complicated. And the collaboration will go much more smoothly. Now, I'm not saying it's all on the therapist's shoulders. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that's the side that therapists can do to make this very complicated issue a little bit easier. Prescribers also can say, hey, we're trying this med. Hey, we're trying that med. Let me know how it goes. If you follow up, that would be super helpful, right? Sometimes therapists make the call and shake their hands and say, okay, I've done. I'm doing my job. But if both sides are interested in helping each other, these relationships can be really effective. And of course, the clients totally benefit from it. Some therapists are lucky enough to have one or two prescribers that they've had a relationship with or they've developed a relationship with. Beautiful. The other thing is, with all these electronic records, sometimes it's easier to communicate via email or if you're in the same system, like if you're working in a clinic. That makes communication much easier. Drop an email instead of doing a call. So it's not an easy problem. There's a lot broken within the system, but I do think there's ways around it. If both sides feel more compassionate towards the other side, you're going to have a better outcome for your client. So well said. Another question that we get a lot is couple and family therapists. So say the client, the identified patient is on board, but the partner or significant other is worried that I don't think you need medication or I'm worried a lot of times with couples we'll see potential sexual side effect is a reason not to use the medication. So this question, as we get ready to wrap up, is about doing the work extending to other members in the system, how to get the family member or partner on board. The biggest, you know, I don't like to convince family members that taking a pill is the right thing to do. I think that gets really complicated. What I'm more interested in is talking to family members about supporting the person's agenda for themselves. Like this is their decision. This isn't yours. What is getting in the way of you being able to embrace what either the spouse or the child wants to do? Like it's kind of like their decision, their body. Okay. And so the, the, the work that I do is more, let me see what roadblocks you have 
that are getting in the way to allow this person to do what they want to do with their body. Because, you know, like you mentioned, sometimes it's side effects. Sometimes it's every time he takes an antidepressant, he gets more distant and withdrawn and I feel lonely. Oh, okay, let's work on your loneliness, right? (laughs) You know, or oh, every time they take a medication, it causes sexual side effects. And I'll do that work together. I'll bring everybody in so that the person who wants to take the medicine and the family member's resistant can hear some of the resistance. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because I think it's natural to us as couple and family therapists to expand the system, bring the partner in. But I think there's this taboo in more individually focused or things like psychiatry. Well, of course, if your partner should be hearing it straight from the prescriber so it doesn't have to get lost in translation for the patient who may already be overwhelmed. So I love the idea of welcoming the partner. Do you think most psychiatrists are open to bringing the partner in when they're talking about a medication choice? Yeah, especially if it's if it's not going to necessarily take more time, right? Like this is your time. Let's bring the person in. Especially if you know somebody says a client, if client says, "Look, my wife is really having a hard time getting on board with me taking this antidepressant. Would you mind if I had her come in our next during our next session, so you might be able to help share some of your insights with her?" Sure, no problem. You know, would you set up three extra sessions with her to convince her? No, that's not going to happen. So I want you to talk about the book, Transcending Trauma, which if you like what we've talked about today, obviously you're going to want to read that. So Frank, talk about what the reader would get in that. And then if people want to continue the dialogue with you, you are a fountain of knowledge, very accessible. Tell people how they, our listeners, how they can get in contact with you. Totally. Yeah. Thank you for uh, saying that. So this book, Transcending Trauma, it's called Transcending Trauma, Treating Complex PTSD, with internal family systems therapy. So it's really about treating relational trauma, complex PTSD with internal family systems. It really is the culmination of my career writing this book. I wrote a manual a couple years ago, but this is really the heart and soul of the work that I do. And it really is this speaking about treating trauma as a psychiatrist and a therapist, but also as a trauma survivor. So it's very important for me. I'm not just an expert in trauma. I speak about my own trauma history and my own journey towards healing. I explain the IFS model. So for those of you who don't know it, there's a section in the book about the IFS model itself. Because I love neuroscience, I incorporate neuroscience knowledge, neuroscience of PTSD and dissociation, and then how do you use this model to treat relational trauma? So it's for me, it's a beautiful book. I feel really honored that I was able to write it. I'm grateful that people are receiving it. And if you're interested in that, you know, you certainly can get it on Amazon. It's published through PESI. So PESI.com is another way you can get it. And it really gives you a personal story as well as a how-to around internal family systems as it relates to the treatment of trauma, integrating neuroscience knowledge. And if you're interested in learning more about me, you can certainly follow me through my website, which is Frank andersonmd.com that's frankandersonmd.com and that's an owen on the anderson and you know all of what i'm doing and where i'm traveling and teaching and speaking is all on there there's a way to follow me and you know people can follow me on instagram and facebook also eli back with you 
Bringing to a close another successful installment of the AAMFT podcast now in our fourth season. And that was a good one in the sense that I learned a ton. Some of the way Frank frames not only the types of psychiatric meds out there, but how to talk to psychiatrists, how to talk to clients. That is some news I'm going to use in my sessions. I hope you'll find it useful too. Again, the book, Transcending Trauma, it's integrating internal family systems in a way that allows clients to access their inherent capacity for healing. They call that self-energy in the model, while also helping them welcome these extreme emotions frequently associated with trauma. In the book, you'll see lots of case examples, summary charts, and great neuroscience research broken down in much the same way Frank did in our interview, including personal stories that will enable both you and your clients to tap into everything important that helps you connect with healing and self-love and trauma relief. If you like this podcast and are also in the need for CEUs, I'll remind you of AMFT's online learning platform, and that is called Tenio. You go to amft.org, you look for continuing education, and type in effective use of psychopharmacology for the MFT. That is a presentation for three hours of CEUs put together by a great group of MFTs and you get lots of information that will be a nice corollary to what we talked about on the podcast today. As always, AMFT members, both student members and professional members, get a significant discount on Tenio, your one-stop shop for everything systemic therapy continuing education. We rely on you, the listener, to drive our content of the podcast now in our fourth season. In fact, I had several emails talking about psychopharmacological interventions, which led to me hooking up with Frank for the interview. So you can get a hold of me, the email, Eli at NorthStarCounselingCenter.com. Also look for me at elikaram.com that's e-l-i-k-a-r-a-m.com follow the conversation on twitter the amft is simply at the a-a-m-f-t i'm at dr eli live you can find all past installments of the amft podcast that's four seasons of the movers and shakers in systemic therapy pioneers, and hot topics like we discussed today. Wherever you find your favorite podcasts, I like Apple Podcasts, you can go to Google, Spotify, please leave us a star rating and review. It helps us rise through the ranks of Mental Health Podcast. As always, until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.